I find that very difficult to think about. You know, the idea that one day I might lose the capacity to kind of know where I am, what I'm doing. Perhaps one route to achieving artificial self-awareness is not to like build it all within the same agent. It's to try and like increase the bandwidth, if you like, of natural communication between external devices and our own natural capacity for self-awareness. Um, so this is, you can think of this a bit like a brain machine interface, but rather than plugging into like the motor system, it plugs into the, the metacognition system. If uh, Steve Fleming entering his, po- his uh, PhD program had come across this book, <laughs> what do you think he would have done had he read this book? <laughs> That's interesting. I think the one thing I would hope it would do is make me aware that this is a field that exists, that we can do research, good research on metacognition. You know, just making, just raising awareness of the kind of research area and hopefully making it exciting for people to go into. This is Brain Inspired. Hello, guys and gals in all categories. This is Paul. Today, I have Steve Fleming back on. He was on recently on episode 99 with Hakwan Lau uh, when we were discussing consciousness. As a reminder, Steve runs his Meta Lab at University College London, where he studies all the different angles in a wide variety of topics related to self-awareness and metacognition and consciousness. Uh, speaking of, on this episode, unlike the previous one with Hakwan, uh, on this episode we focus on his metacognition work, and specifically on his new book, Know Thyself, The Science of Self-Awareness. So this book has a bit of everything you wanted to know about self-awareness, from the activity of neurons to the involvement of different brain areas, the modern computational models uh, to advance a mechanistic explanation, up into psychology and how self-awareness interacts with our many other cognitive functions, how it varies across the lifetime, and beyond individuals uh, to the role of metacognition in sociology, and how and why self-awareness may have evolved, and of course the prospects for and the desirability or not of building some form of self-awareness in AI, and our eventual relationship with that AI in that scenario. So uh, there's that and a lot more in the book, and we discuss a handful of those topics. Actually, we get to quite a bit, plus my insecurity and my jealousy of Steve's career. (laughs) So if you uh, enjoy this discussion, then you'll enjoy the book. There's really a lot more in there than we talk about. You can learn more at the show notes at braininspired.co slash podcast slash 107. If you like the podcast, tell a friend or support it on Patreon. Those are both great things to do. Thank you in advance. Okay, be good, be well, be metacognitive, and enjoy Steve. Hello, old friend. Welcome back. <laughs> good to see you, Paul. So, Steve, I had, um, besides enjoying the book, which I did very much, nice job, by the way, and congratulations. Oh, thanks. No, I really appreciate that. Besides enjoying it, though, I, I had two major kind of reactions. One was that it, it um, threw me into a fit of jealous rage. <laughs> <laughs> so I, <laughs> we talked a little bit about this um, when you were on before with Hakwan, but, uh, you know, I sometimes look back and think about what my career could have been, right, if I'd stayed in academia. And what I realized, like, you know, putting all of 
you know, obviously it's not, the book is filled with all sorts of work, but it, it does highlight a lot of the different aspects of your work and a lot of the directions that you've gone. And I think that um, it's a really good example of something to aspire to in a career, right? It's like, a, you're like a good role model because I say that because when I envisioned my future, I envisioned a series of uh, steps to, you know, basically smaller and smaller questions. But somehow your interests and your research have driven you to expand beyond maybe your original questions. And now you're in like 17 different fields and uh, yeah. being productive in them. So it's really rage is the right uh, <laughs> This is the right well, you no, know, it's kind of you to say. I mean, it does sometimes feel like maybe expanding too far, right? So, oh yeah. I mean, metacognition takes you in many different places. So, I think there's a there's a balance to be struck. I find that like the book really helped in a way by I like kind of changing the focus of the lens, like zooming in and out on a regular basis. Yeah. And I feel like doing something like the book means that you have to zoom extremely far out. Yeah. So that was fun, but I do feel like sometimes there's a balance to be struck. You need to get back to the zoomed in part um, to to kind of keep the science ticking over. So looking uh, at that, you know, at that zoomed out level, <laughs> is that when it struck you like, oh, I've 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 dipped my fingers in too many barrels here, or whatever the expression is, right? Or you know, is it does it feel pretty comfortable? Yeah, I, I wouldn't say it's kind of too many. I think it it also is nice, I guess. Um, now that I have my own lab and, um, yeah. you know, we, we, we have various students who come through, I think that's, that then becomes nice because I guess when you're early in your career, um, you know, when I was just finishing my PhD, I remember kind of feeling like I was still stumbling around trying to find the question that I wanted to work on. Yeah. And it was really kind of only through my first postdoc that I started to kind of get a sense of what that question was. And I guess like now I'm relatively comfortable with what the broad question is. And now I can be a bit more responsive to what people in the lab are interested in and try and like fit those projects into, into the broader framework. So I guess it's, yeah, it's a balance to be struck, but it's nice to also be now seeing people come in and be really enthusiastic about a particular topic. And that might drive us in a, in a different direction. That's what you need is more directions, huh? (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, I guess some directions like crop up, others just drop away over yeah, time if yeah. it's less promising. Um, there's also some directions where I feel like we've been a bit interdisciplinary with the work on, especially say the work at the intersection of metacognition and um, political beliefs and kind of the more social psychology end of the work that we've been doing. Doing that kind of interdisciplinary work is can be quite hard because you just don't, or we we felt like, we were just dipping our toe in there and to really make a kind of concrete research program there, we would have to kind of retool in Mm. a whole other discipline. So hopefully what we've put out there in terms of like showing how metacognition research might be relevant to that area of social psychology is useful for others. But I don't feel like kind of my lab is going to be the one who carries on building on that at the moment. I think that that's pretty good advice for people to hear, um, whether you meant it as advice uh, to graduate students, right? And people entering into graduate school that by the end of your PhD or by the time you get your PhD, you may not still have the question or the, you know, the right broad view. Yeah. And I think, yeah, I I definitely feel like it took a, a long time and I see this happen to lots of people. And I think, you know, looking back, I, I guess I was quite 
stressed at that time, trying to find the question <laughs> I kind of knew I wanted right. to. Well, you feel there's pressure, right? You feel yeah. that pressure. Yeah, you feel yeah. like you've got to carve out your niche. You get told by people that if you want to kind of eventually become a PI and apply for your own grants and so on, you need to have that niche. You need to have that, um, for want of a better word, brand and like people know you for yeah. doing that area of science. And there's, so there's pressure on there. You feel like you've got to find it. But I guess looking back, the the you know just getting stuck in and doing projects that you find interesting without trying to force it and keeping the enthusiasm and curiosity up i i get the sense that as long you know th those core interests i had throughout my phd which looking back were on metacognition and conscious awareness like those core interests kind of meant that when i stumbled upon projects that were more directly related to the neuroscience of metacognition towards the end of my phd then i was in the right place to kind of capitalize that and recognize that that was really exciting and we should go for it. Um, but yeah, it's definitely, it's hard to just say, don't worry about it. It'll turn out yeah. fine. But like, <laughs> you know, it, it definitely probably would have been helpful to hear from others at the time that it would be okay not to force it, not to kind of like feel like you have to just artificially create a research program. I don't think that's ever going to, going to work. Yeah, and there is kind of a, I don't know how you feel about this, but there is kind of a, a magic that happens if you just kind of keep your head down and keep moving forward, you know, eventually, you know, these like recursive loops and the themes in your own work come back and then it really starts to open up and, um, you know, you, you see the connections between some of the things that you've worked on in the past and in the present and, and that really kind of broadens things and, and eventually does make it feel a little more comfortable, I think. Yeah, I think so. I think, yeah, it's easy to kind of like um, look back and start to see a narrative thread connect different things right. you've done. <laughs> um, but it's very hard to see that thread at the time. And I guess yeah. with experience, like a little bit more experience means that you just have that slightly more bird's eye view and you can see everything being a bit more interconnected. And I guess yeah. that's what like, why it's, you know, what's the role of like a PhD supervisor or your the PI in your lab that in a way that's the role they should be playing. They should be saying, mm. ah, there's a connection between what you're working on here and something else that we did like five years ago. Um, so that that really it doesn't mean necessarily that PI knows more than you do or is smarter than you do, but it's just like that they have maybe that they've been around, they've been alive for a few more years and they just wisdom. have the, it's wisdom. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Yeah. Well, let's, yeah. uh, okay, so let, let's get uncomfortable then to start this off. And what I kind of want to know to start off with is, so so the book, you talk about a ton of stuff that you know and that we know about metacognition, you know, the psychology, the, um, the neuroscience, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm just curious what your, I'm afraid that this will take us in 17 different directions, of course, because <laughs> you're working on so many things, but like where the edge of your knowledge is, what, what are you working on right now? Or what are you thinking on about right now that you don't know? What keeps you up at night? <laughs> yeah, so there's a few different things. I think um, in terms of the relationship to this, you know, the, the kind of material I talk about in the book, I talk a lot about how understanding confidence formation at both a neural and computational level might give us insight into how metacognition works, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that um, we now have one of the main messages of the book really is that we now have the tools to um, measure metacognition in the lab. We have these objective measures of metacognitive ability, and that starts to give us a bit of a handle on kind of a science of self-awareness. That's, you mm. know, the subtitle of the book. And 
you know, we have this only been relatively recently, and obviously the the models for doing that and the measures for doing that are evolving all the time. There's still a lot to do in that area, but it's only relatively recently that we've kind of had robust metrics, performance controlled metrics of you know how people are able to reflect on and monitor their um, performance in various tasks, which is what we kind of define as metacognitive ability, metacognitive sensitivity. So sensitivity, yeah. I, I think that, you know, that that's really the main message of the book that we have those tools available. We can now create this um, hopefully well-grounded science of metacognition. And that then opens out, and this is in the second half, um, I talk about how that then opens up all when these- yeah. Yeah, we can we can study how it affects kind of human flourishing in lots of different domains. We can think about how it might emerge during childhood, how it might go awry in cases of mental health uh, disorders or or brain damage and and so lots of different questions that emerge just from having the core tools to measure metacognition. But I think what I've been thinking about quite a lot recently because we've been getting more into the computational modeling of confidence is you know this distinction between what we think about as representing uncertainty so this idea that the kind of brain is a an uncertainty tracking machine that to do Using things like yeah yeah if you have like predictive coding type architectures or just building hierarchical models of the world you somehow need to represent how uncertain you are about different aspects of that model and that allows you to do things like decide whether you need to gather informa information and all these kind of things that we think that metacognition and uncertainty tracking might might help you with. But there's this kind of, it feels like it's quite a deep distinction between the ability to track uncertainty at different levels of the system and this kind of personal level hmm. self-doubt, this kind of personal level confidence, the ability to hmm. tell each other how confident we are in our memories or our decisions. And it's unclear to me where the dividing line is there. You know, like if you think of a kind of hierarchical Bayesian model of perception, there's uncertainty at all those levels of the system. So at what level does that become kind of integrated into a more personal level representation of confidence? Um, and I think we, you know, we don't really know the answers to that. I think the kind of work that people like Adam Capex are doing in, in animal models, like trying to see how confidence representations generalize across different tasks you know, that's telling us something about those more kind of explicit or well-defined representations of confidence that might be downstream from these more implicit, uh, intrinsic um, mm -hmm. representations Automatic. of uncertainty. Yeah, exactly. So I think, I think that, and that roughly speaking, maps onto the difference between implicit and explicit metacognition that I talk about in the book. Um, although explicit also comes along with this baggage of consciousness as well, this idea that explicit representations are also conscious. Well, is that necessarily the case? Let me, because, I mean, that's kind of the, because explicit, at least defined, means that you can report it, right? But then there's right. not a perfect alignment between reporting and and subjective awareness. But, but I mean, that that's, so that roughly is the distinction that I got as well, but I wanted to ask you about that difference, so. Yeah, so people use the term explicit to mean different things. I mean, you can think of an explicit representation as something that can be mm. used to guide various functions. That's kind of like not a side effect of representing other content. It's it's kind of 
encoded directly in some neural population. Uh Um, So that would be one definition of explicit. So this notion of kind of untangling representations down the visual stream, you eventually get to an explicit representation of a dog, for instance. But then there's another definition of it, which would be more about whether um, it's reportable, whether it's conscious, whether it's accessible and, and that, you know, whether those two things go, go along together or not, I think remains to be explored. So to come back to what you're kind of, you know, as you're talking about where to draw the line, right? <laughs> I just hear this fake noise in my head, you know, the ding of like all of a sudden, ding, it becomes <laughs> explicit, right? And and so I can appreciate that line because that's always, I mean, like you said, it's wrapped up in, in the consciousness question too, right? Yeah. We have all these yeah. unconscious processes and where do we, it seems like all of a sudden there's a switch flipped and then there, that that becomes conscious. I mean, it's the same sorts of questions within metacognition as well, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's right. That, you know, the, 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 the distinction between explicit and implicit metacognition does inherit a lot of the, the questions that are being kind of studied in, in the difference between conscious and unconscious uh, mental states more generally. To what extent there's going to be a line per se? I think that's you know that's hard to conceptualize. Like why should binary. there be yeah right. yeah why should there be something binary? Um, I think that the right approach probably here is going to be a functional one. This is one that we've been getting interested recently. So the idea that you know it's an explicit representation of confidence to the extent that it's invariant in the right ways. It generalizes across different task settings, plays the same function in different contexts, like being able to guide information-seeking behavior, um, mm. and so on. One of the things that you write about in the book is um, the prospects of improving metacognition and the difference in uh, meditators, people who do mindful mindfulness meditation. And you can all, I mean, is that, a, you know, going back to the, the idea, the, distinct, the distinction between, you know, binary, right? Either you're metacognitive or not about a given thing um, mm-hmm. versus a gradient, so would it be a fair way to look at it to say that someone who um, is uh, a practicing meditator might just kind of have more access to some of these sub, uh, sub-processes, right, that, um, that aren't at such an abstract metacognitive level, but some of the more subtle sub-processes that are still, you know, c- can be readouts of metacognition, of metacognitive Oh, I almost said awareness of metacognition, um, but but aren't themselves generally what we think of as you know the metacognitive thing or something? Does that make any sense? What I just said? <laughs> yeah, no, I think it does. I, I mean, I think the you know the 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 data on meditation are promising. There's there's not you know these studies are difficult to do, but there have been a couple of papers showing that um, meditation training over a period of a few weeks can improve objective metrics of metacognitive sensitivity. So how well mm-hmm. your confidence tracks your performance. Um, but these improvements, so that's that, you know, that, that provides an interesting perspective on this um, issue of whether things are binary or graded because the improvements are graded. They're, they're relatively su- yeah, subtle. Right. I mean, they're statistically significant, but we're talking about kind of percentage changes on parameters that we can extract out of confidence rating data. Um, so what I think that means is like, we don't yet know, um, 
what meditation is changing there you know what yeah <laughs> what is meditation changing about the confidence formation process like the introspective process we just we just have you know the, the studies just haven't been done on that and we're probably going to need kind of innovation on tasks and models to be able to answer that kind of question but i think yeah that that the general idea that something like meditation can kind of promote the coupling between explicit representations and you know more subpersonal estimates of uncertainty in different processes that seems like a really attractive hypothesis to to test yeah i mean all of these things we have to take it with a grain of salt because something like metacognition is such a such a higher level cognitive function that it is just intertwined with so many of our other cognitive functions that um, you know you're not going to be able, you know the, the goal of meditation is not to improve metacognition for instance right so um, but there's going to be some effects in there somewhere and yeah so this is a lot of stuff to work out but you um, you started off by saying that there was a couple things that maybe not keep you up at night but that are kind of are at the edge of what you're thinking about right now what what was something else yeah so I think the um, you know the other one that I'm getting interested in it's related to you know what we were well what we were just discussing then uh, on introspection but also you know what um we were talking about on the other episode of your podcast on awareness with Hakwan and that's this notion that you know we the metrics of metacognition we have are very kind of third person objective behavioral metrics like how well can you track your performance in various domains um how closely does your confidence track your accuracy and so on. Mm -hmm. But the, you know, there's this other aspect to metacognition. It's one we've already touched upon, which is this idea of introspection that like we have this kind of offline stream of consciousness that we, you know, we think about ourselves. We think about what we're seeing. We think about what we're feeling. And, you know, there's, there's some tantalizing hints that the, the the mechanisms involved in those two notions, those two views on metacognition might be sharing common resources like kind of default mode network and right. kind of areas of association cortex that seem to be hierarchically quite deep into the system. Um, but I think we, we just don't yet have the tools. I mean, there's been some really you know, clever research on mind wandering to try and get at that offline introspective mm -hmm. stream of consciousness. But I just feel like we don't really have the tools to measure that on a, on a nice kind of nice quantitative basis and relate that to moment to moment changes in brain function. And I think that we're maybe on the cusp of being able to do that. So colleagues at UCL have recently shown you could measure replay in the human brain using MEG. So you can decode these rapid states that are getting replayed um, while people are just resting after performing a task. But those states seem to be replayed so quickly, um, just like in, in rodent replay, that they seem to be implausible that the, that kind of rapid replay of experience is going to be linked to the offline reverie that those subjects are engaged in, whatever they're thinking about when they're just sitting quietly in the MEG. So because that rever that reverie and our consciousness is like just so serial and slow, right? The experience. Right. Of it. So like the, yeah. yeah. I mean maybe maybe we're maybe we're mistaken about that. Maybe maybe it is faster than <laughs> we think. And then it all gets very meta meta, right? But like sure. 
it feels like the kind of mind wandering, the kind of introspective offline processing that we we think is um, happening a lot of the case when we're just not on task. That that presumably is linked to similar slowly changing states, and it'd be. I think it'd be super cool to be able to start applying those kind of techniques that have been used to study off other types of offline processes to start thinking about thinking seriously about you know what really is going on um, when we're just thinking about you know internally focused really. I mean, the image is just you know it's fast like EEG. It's it's good for the time domain, but if you know, so that might be something good for something like replay that just happens. It's just a sequence that happens basically as fast as it can, probably, right, within some energy regimes. But um, I don't know how you'd apply that. <laughs> I mean, this it's interesting because, you know, you start off by saying um, maybe one of the take-homes that you'd want people to take home from the book is that, uh, hey, we've got these tools now, and we can actually use them. And now what <laughs> you're saying is we need tools. <laughs> so you're a tools guy. You've become a the importance of tools. Well, yeah. I mean, I think, I guess... What I've, the, I mean, part of the reason I got into this in the first place, and this goes back to the kind of story of the end of the PhD, is I was dabbling during the PhD with trying to develop ways of measuring confidence in perception. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I was very influenced by work Hakwan Lau was doing at the time, developing the Meta D Prime framework. And, um, you know, I was aware that this kind of work was in the air and people were starting to think, okay, you could get use the same tools from memory metacognition research and apply them to all manner of cognitive domains, decision-making, perception, and so on. And so I'd been working as a side project during my PhD on, um, on kind of um, applying, uh, so my PhD was on perceptual decision-making and so it was kind of a natural thing to think about, okay, like, can we start measuring confidence in those decisions? And I started reading around that literature. And then it was, you know, towards the end of the of my time in London at UCL, when I had a chance conversation with a friend, uh, Ramona Weil, who was doing her PhD in Geraint Reese's group. And she was looking at these measures of individual differences in brain structure. And she was looking at them in relation to perception. But we talked about how wouldn't it be cool to start looking at those relationships in relation to other aspects of higher cognition? And I kind of said to her, well, I'm looking at these ways of measuring metacognitive sensitivity effectively. We didn't call it that then, but that's right. effectively what it was. <laughs> um, so we, we thought, well, wouldn't it be relatively straightforward and perhaps a bit of a shot in the dark, but relatively straightforward to just start collecting together data on people who are going through Ramona studies of individual differences in brain structure. And that's how we started to initially discover these links between prefrontal structure and function and metacognitive ability. Um, and so, but, you know, when I think back about that work, which kind of really set me off on this path is, is that if it wasn't for thinking about the behavioral measures, the experimental tools to do good behavioral research, yeah. I don't think, you know, we would have ended up doing that study. And then since then, I've always felt that like once we built a tool or a way of analyzing data, usually behavioral data, because I feel like, you know, my background as a psychologist means that I feel like that's where I'm more comfortable trying to innovate. Then we find we can use it in lots of other different ways. Let's talk about your book. Let's go back to before we get into the nitty gritty, but I, I want to know actually 
if uh, Steve Fleming entering his po- his uh, PhD program had come across this book, you know, <laughs> what a lucky SOB, right? How, what do you think? What do you think he would have done had he read this book? <laughs> That's interesting. I mean, it's an impossible question. Yeah, but it is. Yeah. It's like those kind of time warp questions. Like, what do what would you do if you went back and were able to change something <laughs> about your birth? Yeah. yeah, I, I mean, I think the one thing I would hope it would do is make me aware that this is a field that exists that we can do research, good research on mental cognition. <laughs> you know, just making, just yeah. raising awareness of the kind of research area and hopefully making it exciting for people to go into. I mean, when I was, um, you know, the, the thing that got me into doing, that got me doing a psychology undergraduate degree in the first place was I left high school not knowing what I wanted to do. I didn't, you know, usually in the last year of um, high school in the UK, when you're doing your A-levels, you apply during that last year for university places. So you're kind of meant to know what you want to do at university. <laughs> Which is ridiculous. <laughs> it is, it is. Across cultures, it's ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, I do think this is where the American system has got it right, that you kind of like can delay your choice of major a bit beyond um, beyond school. But, you know, at that time I was very interested in, I was doing a lot of uh, music and um, electronic music and and. I thought maybe that's what I want to do as a career in various ways. You know, I was never very good at it, so I probably would have ended up more on the business or production side than actually making the music. But, you know, the I, I basically didn't really have confidence in anything I wanted to do. And I ended up taking a year out and I went to work for a, I did an admin job in an office in Manchester where I grew up. And it was on the train in and out of um, the city to take that, to go to that, to go to work. I started reading popular science books on uh-huh. psychology, cognitive science. I remember reading Pinker's How the Mind Works and Rita, yeah. Rita Carter's yeah. Exploring Consciousness. And, you know, I was absolutely captivated by just, obviously the books were interesting, the topic was interesting, but I think the one main message that was kind of ringing loud and clear from those books is just this field exists. And I think that's what, you know, that's what then made me go and apply for that as a, a topic at university and I wasn't disappointed. It was fantastic. And, you know, just carried on through from there. And I think if I had one, if I could just make a few, a handful of people feel something similar about say metacognition, self-awareness research, that would be brilliant. All right. Let's, let's really get in the book now because the, I, you know, I started by saying that I felt a few things after reading your book. Uh, one was the jealous rage. Another <laughs> was, uh, Another is, is it made me feel highly anxious as a parent. Have I taught my kids ah, metacognition yeah. well enough? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so let's talk evolution. Why you know, and and cultural learning because this is a um, one of the things that you talk about in the book that the you know which is wrapped up in the development of metacognition, the origins of metacognition. You know, were were hunter gatherers more or less meta, metacognitively sensitive and and accurate? Um, so yeah, I don't know. Do, do you want to just start us off by by talking about because most of what we think about human behavior, we think about genetics, yeah, right. And of course, there's always nature versus nurture. Uh, but you know, part of the genetics story these days is you know it goes it goes from top to bottom actually because even the wiring of our brains is not explicitly coded in the genes because there's just not enough. Um, information capacity in our genes for like a human brain. You could do it with a nematode, 
um, and, and simpler organisms, you could genetically code all of the connections. Um, so even there, it's like the genes provide a, a starter kit. I think that's uh, maybe one of the terms that you use, one of the phrases that you use in the book. Um, and it seems to be potentially the case that metacognition uh, is also along those same lines and, and thus probably other higher cognitive functions. So talk about the evolution and, and the potential of, uh, of the origin of, of metacognition. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a fascinating topic and it's something that I really kind of started learning about while writing the book. I mean, the, the first half of the book is really focused on this emergence of metacognitive capabilities in evolution and development. So looking at comparative work on animal metacognition, also the, the recent brilliant work that's been done on, in babies and infants, kind of painstakingly measuring metacognitive abilities there. And I think the, you know, the general message from work in human development is that while um, you can see initial signs of um, uncertainty uh, tracking in babies, so this is work from um, Louise Goupil and C. Cuide in Paris, the, when you measure metacognition using explicit reports, so judgments of, of, of performance, it takes a while to develop. So even though, you know, even in uh, verbal kids in age three or four years old, their, while their performance on simple tasks might be reasonably good, their ability to know when they know the answer or know when they might be wrong is typically quite poor. And it's, it takes, you know, until the age of four or five to that to start to become in place. Um, so the one message I kind of put out there is that fully fledged metaco- explicit metacognition seems to be uniquely human. It emerges late in child development. It also continues to develop in adolescence. So it doesn't seem to kind of hit peak until around the age of 18, 19, 20. It's not a switch. There's, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, so, you know, the, the broader idea that that leads to is this idea that kind of self-awareness requires an extended period of learning about ourselves. And maybe the, you know, the broader social group, our parents, our teachers help us gain metacognitive awareness. And there's a parallel that I draw here. And here I've been very influenced by um, the work of C- Cecilia Hayes at Oxford, who wrote a book on this called Cognitive Gadgets. And she makes the case that um, for aspects of higher cognition, like mind reading, so the ability to kind of understand other people's mental states, you can find evidence that that capacity is is um, not acquired from birth. We need to be, in some sense, taught to do that. Um, and similarly to being able to talk, be, being taught to read, this doesn't mean that, you know, genetics are not relevant. Clearly you need um, genetics to kind of wire up a functioning visual system. But after that, you need kind of need to be taught how to read by your um, social cultural group. And so um, the idea here is that something like mind reading, something the ability to understand other people's mental states might operate similarly. It doesn't mean we're necessarily intentionally setting up like education programs for mind reading, but just implicitly in our interactions with um, adults, we're getting kind of taught how to think about other minds. And in a recent paper that um, uh, Cecilia and I wrote with colleagues in uh, UCL and Oxford, we made the case that metacognition might be similar. And there's not much evidence out there for this, but there, you know, there's some, um, it raises a number of hypotheses that can 
can be tested. So you can, and you can mm-hmm. actually look in the kind of literature on child development to find aspects of natural um, parent-child interactions that might look like teaching of metacognition. So one example we use in the paper is the game of peekaboo. So you're naturally saying to your kid, like, now you see me, now you don't. So you're almost telling him or her what they're seeing, what they're, um, you know, putting a label, if you like, on that experience. Um, now, so obviously there's lots of things going on there. I'm not saying that that is the way of teaching metacognition. Peekaboo. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> we've, we've cracked it. We're, you know, um, we're done. I never did it. Yeah. Oh no. <laughs> oh, I, never no. My, I never played peekaboo. Um, but yeah. there's, you know, there's, there's lots of research questions that this kind of hypothesis opens up. And it's very much a hypothesis at the moment. But what's interesting on, when you look at research on mind reading on, on, um, false belief understanding is that there's not that much of a genetic component there. So when you look at these twin studies in big samples, um, there seems to be, um, you know, limited evidence for a genetic component to mind reading. And that, that, um, lends support to this, um, cultural acquisition view. And, you know, there's, there's not, there's just not any research that I know of, at least that has looked at the genetics of metacognitive sensitivity. And it'd be very interesting, I think, to, to do that kind of research with the, with the hypothesis in mind that maybe there's going to be less of a genetic component that, than we might have originally assumed. Yeah, I mean, there's just all sorts of questions that fall out um, from from this, to me anyway. I mean, one is, um, well, first of all, you know, one of the points that you make in the book is that metacognitive ability, sensitivity comes online at roughly the same time as theory of mind, um, as mind reading. And I and then I I just thought that's probably when lying right. also comes uh, comes online. My my six year old is just a wonderful liar. Um, so he must have high cognitive, high metacognitive, metacognitive abilities, right? Um, and theory of mind, and and that happens to be also when uh, the prefrontal cortex is undergoing a lot of um, development still, right? And and this maybe as that pruning starts happening a little bit more, that's when these things come online. But so so one of the questions that this raises for me anyway, and I know there's you know you state a lot of them in in, in the uh, book and in the paper that you referenced as well you know, might there be like a critical period? Like even, you know, like vision has a critical period, right? Mm-hmm. With all the monop- monocular deprivation studies, um, there is a critical period in vision. And I wonder if there might be a critical developmental period also, the peekaboo <laughs> period or whatever, um, you know, in development where if you miss it, if you miss that window, then there might be some deficits in metacognition. We're going to go down the list here of some of my questions <laughs> about this. So, Yeah, I mean, I think the the the... I think there's two hypotheses to keep separate here. So one is the notion that metacognition might be culturally acquired. Um, and that, you know, you can use mind reading as an analogy there that the, 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 the it maybe it's similar to, to, um, mind reading in that regard. And then I guess the other mm. more heavy duty hypothesis would be that mind reading and metacognition share some, some common resources. So the reason that they are both Mm-hmm. emerging relatively late in development and come on stream at around the same age and um both appear to be compromised in in autism for instance like that maybe that they're both kind of being supported by some common resource and you could think of that resource as something like building 
recursive models of ourselves and others. I mean, it's, it gets a bit vague when you start thinking about it in computational terms, but that's kind of the story I put together in the book. Um, or the, the capacity to, yeah. Right, exactly. Um, and, you know, one of the leading proponents of this is the philosopher Peter Carruthers, who kind of put this this strong hypothesis forward that basically the, the way that we gain explicit self-awareness explicit metacognition about our own mental function is that we effectively apply mind reading to ourselves it's like we yeah. we um you know use the same same tools and i think you know there's there's some circumstantial evidence surrounding that in terms of the developmental onset the neural um correlates and and so on but i think it's that's still a bit of a live question it's something we're getting interested in in my group but there's still not knockout evidence i think for for one or the other um uh, hypothesis there I mean, another thing that um, th- there should be essentially metacognition differences between cultures, like across cultures, but also within cultures, um, how people have been reared, right? Differences in metacognitive sensitivity based on how you're reared, whether that's culturally or within culture among different groups in society, right? Is there evidence for that? I I forget in the yeah. In the book. So we we have a, we actually have a preprint out recently. So my PhD student Elisa van der Plas did a uh, led a study looking at um, metacognitive sensitivity in um, with a collaborator of ours in Beijing and in London. And you know we obviously this is getting into an area where. Um, you know, if you're gonna if you're gonna claim a difference, you better be damn sure it's it's it's, yeah. it's right. So, hey, what about the difference between males and females? Let's yeah, talk well, about oh god, that. here um, we go. <laughs> um, but like, there was a a subtle, uh, small effect size, but replicated across three different experiments, where the um, Chinese sample and you know we took care to recruit people who had kind of been living in that. Um, uh, cultural milieu for several years and, um, you know, not just arrived in Beijing the day before or arrived in London the day before and so on. Um, and we did find a subtle advantage in metacognitive ability in the Chinese sample. Um, obviously, we don't know why that is. It's, mm-hmm. it's, um, yeah. And yeah. we speculate in the discussion of that paper um, that perhaps it is something to do with kind of a more collective upbringing um, you know, more emphasis on admitting when you might be wrong rather than the kind of Western individualistic, like overconfident <laughs> society. Now, obviously this is going way beyond the data, but like, you know, there is that, that is one hypothesis that came out of that, you know, that, that, uh, cultural evolution, um, view. Um, and I think, you know, the, that's, that's one way into it. I, I think the problem is that to do really good cross-cultural research is incredibly difficult. Um, and mm, mm. I think that I, my, my hunch is that the developmental perspective is going to be more powerful to answer the, the cultural acquisition question. Uh, what about, uh, child actors? Why are they such terrible human beings? <laughs> <laughs> just, <laughs> just hey, you don't write about child actors in the book, but, but I, I did think, you know, like but thinking about the onset of theory of mind and imitation, right. Is all is wrapped right. up in, into this as well. Very human. And, and if we're, imitating others and that's part of the process of becoming metacognitive <laughs> just thinking of like it's kind of you know child actors are kind of scary right because it seems like they're yeah. playing a part but there's like nothing inside <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> oh, sorry I, I mean so I, I i touched upon this a little bit in the book in terms of pretense and like the idea that there might be a link between self-awareness and play which has been studied a bit in in child development and yeah. uh, you know it's fascinating yeah. 
idea that kind of the ability to somehow keep reality at arm's length to kind of recognize that um you know the the what what people call the appearance reality distinction to kind of recognize that like i'm now in in play mode and i know what's real but i can keep on pretending and you know that that seems to be linked to the emergence of i mean as far as i know no one studied it in relation to kind of objective metrics of metacognition but it does seem to be linked to other precursors of self-awareness like um use of mirrors and use of personal pronouns um there are statistical links between that and engaging uh the age at which you engage in pretend play so i think there's kind of this idea that the ability to somehow take a third person perspective on yourself kind of allows you to kind of say okay now i'm going to pretend to be someone else um and and I'll be able to flip back in um, when I want to. Um, it just reminds me of that scene in Extras where Ian McKellen is like joking about what he, <laughs> trying to explain how he acts. And he says, well, the difference is that I, you know, start out as Ian McKellen, Ian McKellen, Ian McKellen. And then suddenly I pretend and I go Gandalf, Gandalf, Gandalf. And then... <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty deep. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> You know, one of the implications of the cultural learning aspect of metacognition um, is the difference between human metacognition and animal metacognition. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, we've talked before, I, I did my graduate work on trying to study uh, metacognition in non-human primates, right? But culturally, um, you know, animals who aren't humans don't have uh, as much access I mean, you know, I don't know. Is that a gradient? So, you know, you talk about animal metacognition Mm -hmm. in the book. And one of the things I wanted you to talk about is some of the first studies testing animal metacognition because that was was interesting. So maybe describe that with with, with the dolphins um, and uh, and then we can go on to sort of the difference between animal and human metacognition. I feel like this is... Yeah, sure. So, I mean, one of the first um, studies of animal metacognition was uh, this really clever uh, research done by David Smith back in the early 90s and he was looking at this ability for different species to track uncertainty in simple discrimination tasks so the way the task worked and the first paper was on um, this dolphin called Natua and um, the way they set it up was that the they trained the dolphin to initially make a binary decision about the pitch of a tone so whether it was a low pitch tone or a high pitch tone um, and then once the, and the way they, he's, you know, he signaled the pitch, the tone was by pressing one of two levers. And once they trained the dolphin to, to be good at that binary decision task, they then started giving tones that were in, intermediate between high and low. And so these were kind of ones where it was difficult to know what was the right answer. Um, and then they gave, you know, the, the option of effectively opting out of the decision. So pressing a third lever, which meant you wouldn't get your fish reward, but at least you could um, avoid a timeout penalty if you were wrong. And so that effectively set up this incentive structure where if you knew that you weren't going to get the right answer on that trial, if you knew you were uncertain at some level, then you could hit the third lever, opt out of the trial and um, eventually get a higher rate of reward, a higher performance overall. And that task that you know, the opt-out task has now been used in, you mm-hmm. know, many different settings, many, um, many yeah. different species. And, you know, this ability to kind of track uncertainty in those kind of tasks 
seems to be you know relatively widespread um, throughout different animal species that have been tested. But that and 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 so, you know so that's you described the the opt out task. And when I was in graduate school, there were already reasons to doubt that that was sort of an explicit representation yeah. of metacognition. Um, and and so that you know like the post decision wagering is is kind of a, an advancement from that, which is where the dolphin in this case would have to like make the choice and then go back go back and bet whether it thought it got the choice right or wrong. Yeah. So so the. The criticism of that opt-out task was just as you said, like that effectively you can think of it as not a two-choice task plus an uncertain option. You can think of it as a three-choice task. Now you just map the middle of the stimulus dimension to the third option and it's all still in kind of first-order world. You don't need any second-order tracking of uh, how confident you are in in that binary choice. So, you know, that that I guess there was then a bit of an arms race, as you said, like between non-metacognitive explanations of performance on those tasks and and um and then you know the use of taskware and i think this is then enabled a really nice fusion between animal research and human research where the idea can you then use post-decisional paradigms where you ask for an initial decision about you know on on many different types of task and then um train the animal to indicate how confident they are in that initial decision via a secondary response. And that was and that was, you know, that was your your work pool. That was discovering neurons in the frontal cortex of the, the monkey, right? That That's tracks that confidence. Right. In the medial in the medial area, which yeah. is you know, right in line with um, you know, with with in human work as well. Yeah. And yeah, it's all frontal. And I felt like uh, confident. Oh well, this post decision decision wagering—that's the way to go. But I mean, it turns out that there are low-level explanations for how that could be implemented uh, implicitly as well. And so that's not a, a fail-safe measure of an animal's metacognitive, um, or what we consider what we would consider like a, a second-order representation isn't necessary, right? But that's not saying that meta animals are not doing it. It's just saying you know the the paradigms thus far that have um, been used in animals and it gets harder and harder to train animals just to do the paradigms, right. let alone do them accurately metacognitively. Right. Um, that, the, all, you know, basically all of them can be explained by these like low level signal detection methods, for instance, using probabilities mm-hmm. and the way that, you know, sampling distributions and such. And then you start to get in these higher, higher, I mean, this is why, you know, more rage and jealousy from my part that you're doing this in humans, right? Because you can make these really complicated tasks that really separate out the uh, sort of implicit um, from the explicit because you can actually report on your your confidence. So, yeah, I, I mean, I think I mean I'm not so sure we can completely separate it out. So I think this is a challenge for human research as well. Um, sure. I mean, I think there's yeah. there's a in a sense there's some face validity just to reports. So at some se- at some level, if you're asking for reports of say confidence in a in a task, then you can kind of guarantee that there needs to be some explicit um representation that's guiding that response even if it's just garbage there's some you know thing that's being accessed um to 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 make that report and i think that like you can start to approach that type of representation via the back door in in animal work so you know one way of doing that is as you say trying to abstract away from say stimulus properties from from even the task itself. So, you know, I talk in the book about work from uh, Nate Cornell showing that, you know, you can train monkeys to rate confidence 
on or to indicate uh, confidence on one task and then they can immediately generalize that on the first or second trial to a brand new task that they haven't been trained on before. So yeah, that's yeah. I think that's then starting to get at what we mean by an explicit confidence representation. And recently in Adam Kepetz's group had a paper in Cell a few months ago showing that they could find neurons in the rat orbitofrontal cortex that um, track confidence on two different tasks. Um, so this kind of had this more domain general confidence representation. So I think, you know, by looking at generalization and then also how those confidence um, representations are then used to guide behavior, you can start to get at something that looks more like an explicit confidence representation um, in humans. And also looking at mm. dissociations with performance as well, because if it was just a, if we go back to the dolphin experiment, if it was really just a kind of three option task, then you would imagine that if you say somehow managed to abolish the ability to track uncertainty in that task, then it would have no bearing on, on, on the task performance there. Um, whereas if the uncertainty representation was somehow separate, um, somehow separately represented in the brain, then if you could selectively abolish that, you might leave kind of the binary decision intact, but disrupt opt-out mm -hmm. um, behavior. And that's effectively what, um, you know, the CAPEX group have shown in, in rodents that you can lesion the AFC in rats and that impairs confidence-based uh, behavior, but doesn't impair first order decision. So I think like there's, you know, there's parallels there. Also, you see the same thing in humans when you, you know, when you're looking at patients with damage to prefrontal cortex, you're, you, you know, we've done some work on this showing that metacognitive ability is impaired, but first order performance on the task is, remains largely intact. So I think there are lots of parallels to be drawn there. I think the kind of one missing piece is probably going to be this more extended culturally acquired development that ends up being something like more like the kind of conscious introspection that we were talking about at the start, which we don't really have a grasp on yet. So I think that that, you know, where the kind of objective metrics of metacognition butt up against the conscious self-awareness, that's where I feel like the differences are going to start to emerge. And the problem is we don't really have great tools for looking at the latter apart from explicit reports. Yeah. Uh, you know, you mentioned Adam, capex a few times i reached out to him a long time ago to come on to this show i need to do that again uh i, I enjoy his work and and communicating Adam, get on the show come on yeah yeah no kidding <laughs> if you're listening yeah uh, of course he's listening you know <laughs> <laughs> so we've talked about you know kind of the uh the cultural aspect of building up metacognition uh in humans and uh another thing you talk about in the book and we'll come back to this later when we talk a little bit about the um implications in ai for, for this sort of stuff but uh, you know, as we age, there are lots of these wonderful diseases that we get where we lose our sense of self. And you talk about a lot of those um, in the book. Can can you? So so that's kind of the downside uh, when we mm -hmm. start losing that self representation, almost. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that you know, one, I guess, message of the book is that we have, in a way, we've we we have these algorithms. We don't understand them very well, but we do have these capacities very much grounded in the wetware of the brain to be self-aware. And that means that it's fragile in the same way that, you know, all other types of mental function are fragile. And in a way that's a no brainer, that's obvious, but it feels like it's difficult to grasp on a personal level. You know, the, 
I find that very difficult to think about, you know, with the idea mm. that one day I might lose the capacity to kind of know where I am, what I'm doing, whether I still have good cognitive function and so on. And that's, that's very frightening, I think. And, and I think that like my, my hope is that by understanding a bit more about why that might happen, we can maybe start to approach those, approach those situations with a bit more knowledge. Um, so I remember a situation where, you know, my, my grandmother had, um, dementia and she, mm. you know, was clearly losing, uh, insight into the cognitive problems that were coming along with that. And I think that my grandfather at the time didn't really understand why she didn't understand why, you know, those problems were happening. And she kind of, he yeah. would kind of blame her in a sense. And, you know, that that's a completely understandable yeah. reaction. But I'm, in a way, I kind of think that like, by understanding that the lo- the loss of insight, the loss of self-awareness is part and parcel, unfortunately, of some uh, diseases that are, um, you know, more common in older age, that can hopefully provide a bit more understanding in those kind of situations. Well, that's, you know, that also speaks to the the importance of uh, the social aspect, I, I suppose, of metacognition or its functioning in a social aspect, because, you know, often people suffering from dementia are not aware that they're suffering yep. from dementia. Yep. I mean, I think it can be frustrating at times. They can, you know, show frustration, but it's not, um, doesn't seem to accompany a, a large sense of awareness of what's going on but yeah and also you know the the loss of metacognition about memory is is one of the early signs of dementia and i think you know my my clinical collaborators at ucl uh, you know we're starting some work on this and and they understand that acutely just anecdotally they can kind of almost like know that the patient who's coming into the clinic has dementia because they're not complaining necessarily about memory problems they just show up on the test Right. And, yeah. but at the moment, metacognition or, um, is not part of, say, a routine neuropsych assessment. Um, so th- this is one thing that I think we're trying to, you know, raise awareness of that this could be possible to measure, to quantify, to potentially protect against. We don't understand how that might work, but it could work. Um, and as you said, like there's lots of functional consequences of loss of metacognition. You, you know, you, if you don't, if you're not aware of, say, potential memory problems, then you might not take steps to A, seek help in the first place, but also take kind of maybe adapt at home, write more lists and, um, you know, not go too far away that you might forget where you are and so on. So there's yeah. kind of lots of implications there of, of like what lack of metacognition might cause both on an interpersonal level, but also on a on a functional level. But you have to wonder, you know, if they're not experiencing the strife that comes along with the lack of metacognition. I mean, it's really the people around them that are experiencing the strife more so. So that's like a social function phenomenon. Yeah. And I think there's, it's very interesting and important to think about the fact that metacognition might not be an unalloyed good here, right? So that in some cases, maybe we don't want more self-awareness and there's an ethical dimension to this. But, you know, there's, I think there's certainly at earlier stages of, of, of disease, then there does seem to be a sound rationale for trying to, you know, enable people to have the tools that they might need to adapt to changes Hmm. in say cognitive or memory function. But yeah, absolutely. I think there's a interesting question about like, who is it benefiting? Who's the metacognition benefiting um, in in situations like that? (laughs) 
you said meta memory, and I I realized the last time I was at my grandparents, who are both in their upper nineties now, hmm. both ninety seven. Wow. Um, and still like you know cognitively mostly there, but I did I was there for like five days, and I heard I would say seven times that um, people used to get dressed up to go to air, on airplanes. <laughs> I heard that story about seven times, and sounds like a good story that I'd like to hear. That you know, so let's <laughs> go. <laughs> I can tell it to you. I can tell it to you almost verbatim. <laughs> but, but you know along with the aging comes just the not caring about what other people think but um you, you, which is you know helpful to a degree right um but i know i've been told that i tell the same story i've probably told the same story on the damn podcast <laughs> multiple times which is scary right. you know it's scary to think but that's also a social thing because for myself i don't care i only care like that other people don't see me as being cognitively unfit right by telling the same story over and over or being unaware of my own uh, abilities. So, um, I don't know. I'm just saying I'm coming more and more around to your notion that social aspects, that there's a social functioning of metacognition. You're probably right, Steve. That's what I'm trying to say. Did, uh, l- let's switch gears. Did you know that, um, Ted Nugent got COVID? Do you know who Ted Nugent is? Yeah. 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 No, I didn't. Okay. So he's a, and I'll just refresh everybody's memory. He's a classic rocker, uh, I suppose cat scratch fever probably is maybe is I don't know what what his hits are. I think that's him. Anyway, he's a really strong leaning right leaning COVID denier. <laughs> but he uh he got COVID um which you know my friend texted me just kind of joyously, "Hey, did you hear Ted Nugent got COVID?" But I, I didn't really I'm not I don't follow Ted Nugent. Anyway, um <laughs> but this leads me into uh, some of the other thing another thing that you talk about in the book um is that you know, and I actually referred to this the last time we talked when you were on with Hakwan. Uh, I see where you go. I see where we're going now. I, it took me a while to. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Roundabout five minute delay there. <laughs> the splashy results that you got that showed how the, the a lack of metacognition is correlated with a with political dogmatism, mm-hmm. um, and and that um, and I don't know. Maybe talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So the. Um the the research there was really to start to look at whether this capacity to i guess recognize errors in simple tasks that's what we're measuring in the lab when we're kind of measuring this ability to track performance in various domains whether that had any real world bearing and one approach to doing this was to start looking at large samples of people over the web, so using these advantages, these advances in um, online data collection, we can now run tasks. We can even do, um, well, almost do uh, psychophysics over over the web, um, and we can start to, you know, get people to do um, simple metacognition tasks, and then look at associations between metacognitive capacity and other aspects of uh, personality and um, and say mental health as well. We've done some studies on on that. And um, one thing we looked at was the extent to which people were more dogmatic in beliefs about political issues. And the rationale here was to think, well, perhaps what is um, helping people, say, um, recognize when they might be wrong about something is a similar capacity to what helps them recognize when they might be wrong about, say, a perceptual decision or a memory decision. Um, so this connection potentially between metacognitive sensitivity and uh, political um, or, or dogmatism in, in political attitudes. And so we asked 
you know, hundreds of people to do these tasks and fill out these questionnaires about political beliefs. And we then <coughs> applied a big um, factor analysis to the political um, questionnaire responses. And we extracted out a dimension that we called um, dogmatism, which tracked uh, responses to questions such as like, I think I'm right about these issues, um, you know, and everyone else is wrong um, and so on. And, and you know, the, the, what was interesting is that that dimension was, um, it, it was correlated with just political orientation on a uh, right-left spectrum, but quadratically. So there's, you know, people at both at the right extreme and the left extreme were were more dogmatic mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but it wasn't you know a it was a pretty noisy correlation so you could in theory be quite centrist but also be quite dogmatic it's like no i am a dogmatic centrist in my attitudes like the extremists are crazy and yeah, i am you know i do quite often now feel like i'm a dogmatic <laughs> centrist at the moment um yeah but <clears throat> so but in you know in general there was this u-shaped relationship so people who are more extreme at each end of the political spectrum were also more likely to be uh, more dogmatic in those attitudes and what we found is that when we then regressed those the political dogmatism against um, task performance we found first of all that just being able to perform a simple task like cognitive task didn't predict anything about political attitudes so not hugely surprising there what was perhaps more surprising was that your confidence level in the task was also not a very good predictor so it wasn't just that people who are more dogmatic were overconfident. Instead, it was that people who are more dogmatic had lower metacognitive sensitivity. So the, the, this, this capacity to realize when they might be wrong about a decision or, um, you know, a, a, an individual um, uh, response on the task. And so, the, and, and interestingly, that predictor, that metacognitive sensitivity predictor, we then replicated that across a, we just did a straight replication in a second sample. Um, and, in those, in both of those experiments, that predictor was a stronger uh, predictor of political dogmatism than kind of more standard political science predictors like age or gender or education level. Um, and so we think there's like, you know, I I talked talk to someone else recently about this result, and um, they, their response was they listened to you know this long description of all the science we did, and they basically said, well. You know, it's a, I guess it's good that science is telling us something that we already knew intuitively all along. <laughs> um, and there is a bit of an element to that, I guess, that like, in a sense, it makes a lot of sense that people who claim to be more, you know, certain in their worldview and they're not willing to listen to alternative opinions might also be unwilling to admit mistakes um, about other things. Um, but I guess what we were trying to do there is is drill down into the underlying cognitive processes, like strip away anything about, you know, social affiliations, about who your friends are, your, your, the emotional issues, literally just measure metacognition on a really simple perceptual task that has no kind of motivational component at all. And it was, we found it quite striking that there was that relationship between a very specific aspect of metacognitive ability and you know the dogma how dogmatic you were about real world attitudes well one of the things that i find baffling is that on the extreme the dogmatic political views i want to say that they they must be missing they, their elevator must not go to the top floor but it doesn't uh seem to correlate with iq so much right yeah so i mean i think what we found well in that study we had measures of education level um, and there wasn't a relationship there. Um, now, obviously, we're studying 
a convenient sample is people who are already interested in participating in cognitive science experiments like online, um, where we have a relatively narrow distribution of um, IQ levels when we have measured it over the web. But in other samples, when we have measured a proxy for IQ, we found even in samples that are over a, of over a thousand people, so very well-powered experiments, we found a negligible link between IQ and, um, and metacognitive capacity, even though we can replicate associations like with decision speed, for instance, like the speed of processing hypothesis. Mm. So I think that um, what, we, what we think might be going on there is that effectively metacognitive sensitivity is tapping into a style of thinking, like self-aware style of thinking, that might not be the same as the ability to like solve a Raven's matrix task. Now, obviously it then depends on what is your definition of intelligence. Like maybe it's good to have that self-awareness for functional, yes. you know, being a adaptive human in the world. It probably is. Pleasant, being pleasant. Being a pleasant yeah. person. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But, you know, in terms of the way IQ is measured in cognitive psychology, in our studies, we've tended to find limited associations. That's interesting. I mean, that must be fun at dinner parties, at family functions as well, because you can always just accuse someone of being metacognitively insensitive, unaware. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Insensitive, because they'd probably take that as a compliment. <laughs> so, I mean, there's there's so many other things that we can talk about, uh, So, but I want to make sure that we get to a, a couple more things here. One is, uh, you know, the, the artificial intelligence aspect of this. Uh, so I, I'm actually, I'm going to steal one of the, one of the, you know, you have quotes in the beginnings of, of your chapters, which are fun. And uh, one of the ones I think you use it earlier in the book, but I'm going to steal it for and, and reuse it for my first uh, novel that I'm going to write, okay. a sci-fi novel, which is about, um, <laughs> I'll just give the idea away so someone else will write it. Not that it's a great idea, but, you know, imagining, right, brain implants and our, our continued reliance on um, AI and on gadgets uh, that in the future, um, in the future, that there will be like this gradual lessening. Speaking of losing, mm. you know, mm -hmm. our sense of awareness, our sense of self, that uh, reliance on these things will gradually take that away until there's nothing there, mm -hmm. right? Anymore, there's no no personhood, no sense of self. Mm -hmm. You know, that'll be the uh, that'll, that's the sci-fi novel anyway. But um, so so here's the quote. This is from Kierkegaard. Um, the biggest danger that of losing oneself can pass off in the world as quietly as if it were nothing. Every other loss, an arm, a leg, $5, a wife, etc., is bound to be noticed. So that's like this. I mean, this goes back to the same thing, losing yourself with, um, you know, age-related uh, diseases, that it can kind of fade away without even noticing it, which is scary is what it is uh, from, from where I sit now. And in fact, you you open the the chapter talking about the future of whether there'll be metacognitive self-aware machines with uh, a story about the perils of um, relying on uh, machines that are automated, uh, an autopilot story. Maybe you could just um, relate that story, kind of the, the gist of it. Yeah, I mean, it's a really tragic story. There's in 2009, I think it was, that um, this Air France Airbus, um, which was en route from Brazil to to Paris, effectively just dropped out of the sky um, and, you know, everyone was was killed and it was, you know, flying along and, it you know, it gives me chills to think about the idea, you know, you like those long-haul flights when kind of everything settled down, you're just like, you know, getting ready for, yeah. for the night crossing and, you know, just cruising along at 
um, whatever it was, you know, the 30,000s of feet. And they encountered a storm and the, the storm on the radar was not a unusual one. It was one that they could normally deal with. And it caused the, um, the, one of the airspeed indicators to ice up. Um, and the effectively what that led to happening is that the autopilot disengaged because it wasn't getting a speed reading and it handed over manual control to the pilots and the pilot um kind of the captain in charge was on a rest break the inexperienced co-pilot took over manual flying um and i think for reasons that the investigators still don't really understand the he started to climb and um because the airspeed indicators weren't wor- working, it made it very difficult for them to notice that the plane was stalling. And um, because then they were, then they were losing mm. height, he then was constantly pulling back on the stick. And this is the kind of thing that like, you know, I I haven't myself learned to fly, but a friend of mine, you know, learned to fly fairly recently. And he was telling me about how, you know, in the first few hours of training, you get learned how to recover a stall because it can be so dangerous, right? So the thing you need to do is effectively just, counterintuitively pitch down and you know gain airspeed and then level out and so it's the kind of thing that if you're a professional pilot flying for air france you should kind of almost have in your bones you should be able to do but for some reason he you know he didn't level it out and and the the um it just kept losing altitude very slow flying slow stalling and then just hit the ocean and the investigator report obviously very difficult to piece together exactly what happened in a situation like that um but the one salient detail from that investigation report that i referenced in the book was that the pilots had spent a huge amount of time you know they they had lots of they had thousands of hours between them but a lot of that time was simply monitoring the airbus autopilots right? so they you know they they obviously have to go into simulators to practice for emergency yeah. they they're very skilled at manual control but in terms of the actual time spent on flight deck it's usually monitoring automated control so it's a obviously a tragic story and there's lots of factors involved there but the the kind of one of the lessons i try to take from the book is this idea that you know automation can seep into our daily lives and we can become quite complacent about it you know even in very professionalized settings there might be cases where it's quite jarring to like take back control mm-hmm. and and i then the 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 chapter then becomes a bit of a futuristic look about what might happen to our self-awareness in the future as we start outsourcing more and more to um artificially intelligent devices and you know the idea is that we might have a guess as your sci-fi novel would would uh, would um claim is that we might have more and more or less and less, sorry, chance of monitoring kind of difficult things we're doing, difficult decisions, difficult driving, difficult, like lots of things in life we find difficult, we need to struggle, we need to monitor how we're doing it. And if we end up outsourcing a lot of things, then at the time we're asked to kind of step in and do something important, we might be like, well, you know, I've spent my whole life just being monitoring other things other other artificial devices and so i don't have that intuitive awareness of why things have gone wrong and how to fix it how do i have a conversation without using an emoticon that sort of <laughs> but, <laughs> but but this you know an antidote to that um i just realized and and you talk about this in the book too 
um, I think earlier in the book, maybe, I, I can't remember if I'm switching it up, is, you know, this is an age-old uh, issue, Socrates, right, mm-hmm. who warned against uh, writing, mm-hmm. the, the technical, technological advance of writing would ruin our memory and our cognitive abilities. So this is not a new idea, um, but it does seem more... Um, <laughs> I don't know, more perilous now as we're, as we're yeah. sloughing off more and more of our cognition to, to AI. But you, you see two solutions sort of moving forward, right? One, and, and by the way, uh, you know, your particular work um, is, you know, if, if it's successful, if it continues advancing, um, will lead to self-aware robots, right? The computational implementation of metacognition will eventually could be uh, you know, built into the robots, uh, into AI. Yeah, so maybe we should maybe we should tackle that one first because it is something we've been thinking about a lot recently. And in fact, we've just started a project with um, the uh, the with researchers at Oxford at the Oxford Robotics Institute. There you go. Um, and we have a a grant from uh, you know the UK um, research councils to to start. Thinking about ways of, I mean, the metacognition component there is quite small. They they have a broader grant on autonomous systems, you know, not not just kind of machine learning systems, but autonomous robots that can kind of trundle around the real world and do useful things. And obviously, one really difficult thing there is dealing with out of distribution data. Like you haven't trained your robot to, you know, encounter this particular situation, but it needs to be able to handle it. And so you know, classically machine learning methods, AI researchers have known for a long time that they tend to be overconfident about out of distribution data. So they, you know, effectively have poor metacognition about things they haven't seen before. Mm. Um, And so one thing we're, you know, starting to think about is like, are there ways of learning lessons from human metacognition research to the functional metacognition of robots? Um, Now there's already a lot of cool work out there that's, kind of trying to build uncertainty mm-hmm. into AI systems, like using dropout or Bayesian approaches and so on. But, you know, I think there's hopefully quite a lot of crosstalk that can happen between human metacognition research and and uh, kind of the, the development of robotics. And so, you know, I'm, I'm quite optimistic about that research program um, in the sense of like, being able to have useful confidence representations. It doesn't necessarily mean we're suddenly going to kind of create a self-aware in a, in a conscious sense robot, but we, you know, building in some kind of um, useful confidence representations that can be flexibly applied to guide behavior or also to then like hand back control. I think this is a really interesting you know, connection back to that example I just talked mm-hmm. about with the autopilot. Like if you have, rather than just switching off and going, right, take over if you have a more graded readout if you like of how confident the system is that it knows what it's doing then perhaps like 10 minutes out of this disaster you can kind of start to say well hmm, you know maybe it's telling us that it's not so happy with what it's doing and that's very similar to what humans do you know just naturally you know you can imagine two pilots saying to each other i'm not quite sure this is on the right lines we should probably think about you know how we're going to handle this Um, donna come take a look at this yeah exactly exactly but so so those are kind of the two solutions that you map out in the book is whether you know moving forward do are we going to build these autonomous um completely self-contained AI agents or is it important and and you discuss why it might be important to keep um human in the loop and you favor the human in the loop um 
for for very I guess for the reasons you just uh, enunciated. Yeah, I, I think there's you know the the other one which I guess is even more futuristic and not really on our immediate radar yet. Although who knows what you know might be coming down the tracks is this idea that like perhaps one route to achieving artificial self awareness is not to like build it all within the same agent is to try and like increase the bandwidth if you like of natural communication between external devices and our own natural capacity for self-awareness um so this is you can think of this a bit like a brain machine interface but rather than plugging into like the motor system it plugs into the the metacognition system Hmm. um and i think there's you know reasons to believe that might be quite useful so um for instance like we we don't need to then potentially have working knowledge of how these black box systems are doing what they're doing um because you know as self-aware human agents we don't have working knowledge typically of how our own cognitive processes are working or right. our own biology is working like i don't know how my eye works really i mean i know roughly but i can recognize when my vision's out of focus and i need a new pair of glasses and similarly you know i don't know the bio, the biomechanics of how i move my arm around very in very much detail but i can recognize when i might have fluffed a tennis shot and you know need to think more about my swing for instance so the the idea and this is then gets very speculative is that perhaps by developing a stronger interface with like human metacognition this doesn't necessarily have to be like a kind of sci-fi implant but it could be just something more simple as a kind of the right level of readout to get us to you know that that what i just said about like having some low dimensional confidence representation being continually fed back to us something along those lines could end up being very useful for kind of retaining humans in the loop without while still benefiting from like the amazing potential to outsource lots of things to to um ai devices mm. so you're not worried about us losing our sense of self well so yeah maybe the reason i do favor the latter is because like the 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 kind of just the full full tilt let's build a self-aware robot might end up being like well you know then you get very uh kind of into the territory of you know what's left for you know humans to do if we're outsourcing everything and we're also outsourcing the awareness of of what's going on there then perhaps we then just kind of become targets for delivery rather than active participants active autonomous participants and yeah and then and then it it circles very interestingly back to the kind of i mean this this is now you're really pulling me well out of my lane, Paul, but I'm circling right. <laughs> circling back to like the cultural evolution aspect. And I've, um, you know, Cecilia Hayes uh, talks about in, in her book about like how this view of cultural evolution of cognitive capacities suggests the potential for new capacities to come online in the future or ones that we might have lost right. In, right. in distant history which is fascinating, but it also kind of points towards maybe something like metacognition being more fragile than we like to think as a, as a culture, as a species, like it could well be that we kind of potentially lose a, something like an awareness of ourselves, not completely maybe, but it gets transformed in ways that maybe dull our autonomy in some important way. Um, So I think it's, you know, how we chart a path from, here to something like that is very difficult to imagine but like it's just useful i think to be aware that that might be possible because if that might be possible then we need to be probably quite careful that we don't go down that route do you think that we are more or less 
metacognitively accurate than let's, get, let's do the 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 trope of the cavemen right? or the <laughs> hunter gatherers, right? Uh, you know, it's interesting to think not just about metacognition, but also about our subjective awareness and the quality. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and I was going to ask you if those two track, if the quality of our mag- metacognitive accuracy tracks with our quality, I guess, of uh, subjective experience. Um, but, I, you know, it's interesting to think about medic, especially if it's culturally, if it's if a lot of it is dependent mm-hmm. on cultural learning, um, you know, what that implies about our modern level of sensitivity versus our future versus, you know, the past. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's really hard to answer. I think that there's some sense in which and and I you know speculate about this in the in the book about like the idea that because metacognition plays a social function, perhaps it's intertwined with things like mind reading and the ability to think about other people's minds. Then one kind of evolutionary driver there could have been, uh, or cultural evolutionary driver there could have been the need to collaborate in social groups, the need to kind of coordinate when we're you know going about our our daily lives and we can't do everything ourselves like hunting or cooking or whatever it is and we need to then kind of share out those those duties and and really track skill in different domains and kind of online say to our partner oh you know i just saw something over there so perhaps we should go and check it out like obviously language is a huge component of that but like the ability to comment on subpersonal mental states like visual uncertainty perceptual uncertainty whether I remember things well or badly, that kind of capacity to kind of tell other people about your cognitive reliability could have been very useful in enabling collaboration. And, you know, research by um, people like Bahadur Barami and Chris Frith have shown that in laboratory settings, when you allow people to share their confidence in perceptual decisions, they can achieve more as a pair than they even the best one could have achieved alone so that's kind of proof of concept that those that kind of confidence sharing that sharing of metacognitive representations might have been really important um taking the long view of evolutionary history but i i guess that you know one perspective on that when we kind of zoom forward to modern the you know modern life is that we're all becoming much more specialized so if anything it's I mean, it's hard to draw the analogy, I guess, but, you know, in science especially, so we're all becoming much more specialised and it's increasingly uh, paramount to know, you know, what you know about a topic, but also maybe know what someone else knows and what you don't know about an area and where you might be able to go and find that information out. And so in that sense, I do think that, like, it's unlikely we've got less metacognitive, that would be my guess. Um, but whether now we're outsourcing more and more of that kind of knowledge gathering exercise or whether that then means we're kind of at the top of the inverted U, that would be, that would be a, <laughs> a scary thing to contemplate, wouldn't it? <laughs> we're, we're, oh. me and you, Paul, we're peak metacognition. Yeah, I, oh, I don't, wow, we're at yeah, peak I, metacognition. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. I, I think that like, um, <laughs> but science does feel like a good analogy, you know, being, there's a lovely book that Stuart Feinstein wrote called Ignorance, you know, just making the case that doing good science requires you to be acutely aware of what you don't know. And if anything, like our education system, like the way we train people to do PhDs mm-hmm. and so on, is too focused on kind of churning out projects and papers and not enough on reflecting on what 
the field as a whole doesn't yet know and kind of searching for that. So I think there's, you know, there's, there's, there's hope that we certainly haven't lost it. Um, and perhaps it's become more acute just because of specialization. Well, Steve, we've, um, we covered a lot, uh, uh, you know, uh, that you talk about in the book, what we didn't cover, we didn't cover some things like, uh, you know, the, the computational aspects, the, the modeling and stuff that you talk a lot about. We, we did cover, I don't know. I still don't know why you, why you dislike child actors, but we'll get to that next, next uh, episode. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for coming back, by the way, this has been a lot of fun again. I'll see you next week, perhaps. <laughs> no, it's been an absolute pleasure. So thanks for having me on. The book is Know Thyself, The Science of Self-Awareness. I hope everyone goes out and, and reads it. So thanks, Steve. Thanks, Paul. It's been great. Brain Inspired is a production of me and you. I don't do advertisements. You can support the show through Patreon for a trifling amount and get access to the full versions of all the episodes, plus bonus episodes that focus more on the cultural side but still have science. Go to braininspired.co and find the red Patreon button there. To get in touch with me, email paul at braininspired.co. The music you hear is by The New Year. Find them at thenewyear.net. Thank you for your support. See you next time.